Good morning. Um, if we haven't met yet, and with a room this size, it's very likely. Um, my name is Austin Pettit. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Alpine. And I get the privilege today of bringing you a message that's going to be a lot of fun, actually. Um, I say that every time I speak because it really is. But this is a really cool passage. We're going to jump back into a study that we started last year here at Alpine. If, if you're new to Alpine, you haven't been here for a while, we spent the better part of 2023 going verse by verse through the book of Mark. And we got through about the first 13 chapters before Christmas came and we took a break. Now we're going to jump back in, starting with Mark 14 today. We're going to read about a, if I may say, a scandalous story in which Jesus is anointed before his final Passover meal. It's, it's scandalous because of the characters who are involved, but the point of the story today is not so much the scandal, but it, it talks more about the, the perspective of the people who are in this story. The reason it was scandalous is because their perspective may not have been focused quite so clearly on the Son of God who was in the room with them. We have that same kind of struggle these days, and we're going to get into that talk today. Um, one of the really fun parts about doing verse-by-verse Studies through Scripture, though, is we get to come across these stories that are often overlooked in larger topical studies. This story we're going to read today is very short, happens right before uh, Jesus' trial and uh, crucifixion and death and burial. When we talk about these stories, we usually start with the trial part, but we can often miss the right before parts that are equally important. And in fact, this story today is actually integral into our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's this little tiny story about a lady in the middle of a room of dinner was super critically important. In fact, it's so important that more than one person told this story. The story we're going to read today is in both in, in Gospels Mark and Matthew and John. So it was repeated by several eyewitnesses. It was so important that at least three of Jesus' followers felt the need to write this thing down. So it's a big deal today. When you read the details today, you're going to see, and you're going to think, well, okay, this is kind of an you know, offhanded story, but everything in God's Word, everything in Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. That means that even this story means something to us. It's something God is trying to teach us today. Our job today is to explore that and to see what it is God has for us in this little interaction in a dude's dining room. So we're going to start there today. Um, as we get into the story, though, I want to I set the stage for you here because I'm going to focus a lot on perspective, right? Perspective in our world frames our reality. How we see things frames up how we interpret them, how we understand them, right? How, how we see Jesus' teachings is based on our perspective of Him. To kind of break this down for you, I, I want to share a, a kind of funny story. Um, I, last, this last week, I was in Connecticut for a trip for work. Um, and the week before, I was at my, my small group, and I was complaining to my guys about having to go on this trip. If you've ever flown from Salt Lake to the East Coast, it is not fun. It's nine hours of eye-gouging boredom. It's really tough. Um, and so I was like, I got on this dumb trip, and I'm going to be out there an entire week, and I have to go out there and do this work stuff. And my guy's like, hey, what, what are you going out there for? I said, well, work's flying me out there so I can learn the proper sensory profile for Pepperidge Farm cookies and crackers. And they, they all kind of chuckled like some of you just did. And they said, so let me get this straight. You're, you're flying to the East Coast for work to eat cookies and crackers for two days. You, you poor, poor man. I was like, yeah, yeah, just knock it off. Anyway, uh, we, we laughed about it and we chuckled, but it was actually kind of a fun reminder for me 
to check my perspective because what I was seeing as this huge inconvenience that was so annoying and difficult was actually possibly a treat for a lot of other folks. And I had to step back and remember that my perspective on the situation was focusing on the negative, not the positive. And because the interaction and that lesson that God actually taught me through that small conversation, I did get to see some fun things while I was out there. We did have a good time. I can tell you which cookies are best. If you're curious, come after me in the service. We'll talk about it. It's a critical piece of information for today. But, that's, but the point of the message today is our perspective is important when we talk about the things Jesus said to us. We're going to see in our story today there are, there are a few what we call hard sayings that Jesus shared that come up in the background of this story. And, and the, the point of the story seems to be, at least in part, a call to the readers to consider how do, how do you handle the hard sayings of Jesus? The different characters in our story today didn't handle it super well. Actually, one of them failed it in a catastrophically bad fashion. The, the three hard sayings we're going to go over, and I'm going to give them to you real quick here, are, are the first one is, you can't serve both God and money. Jesus said that. Jesus said, he is God. Jesus is God. That was a hard one. And Jesus also said that he is the only way to heaven. Those three sayings are in the background of our story today, and we're going to see how everybody kind of dealt with those things. Remember, Jesus' message often challenges us to lay down our preferences, our, our, our perspectives, and, and say that's not as important as what Jesus wants me to do. And he wants us to see the world the way he sees the world. He wants us to treat people the way he treats them. He wants us to see ourselves the way he sees us, not the way our broken perspective can look sometimes. When we talk about the first one here, you say, you know, you can't serve both God and money that's a big deal in our society. Now, brief side note, I was typing this sermon on an airplane, and I, I typed the words, you can't serve both God and Monet, like the painter, which I, I laughed out loud on the airplane, got some funny looks, but it, that's also true, but not the point. Anyway, so you can't serve both God and money. It's a big deal in our culture, right? Money's a big deal in our culture. Whether we admit it or not, it is. But what our world sees as a command from Jesus for us to follow, we should see as a gift, because if, if I can't serve both God and money, I haven't got to keep trying to do that. I can just serve God and trust that the money comes. That's not a sermon for today. That's not the point of today. But that's, that's what we're talking about. It's a perspective shift. We talk about the fact that Jesus is God. right? That was pretty out there in his time. He says, I am God, guys. And they're like, whoa. He actually, the religious leaders killed him for that. But when we look at what Jesus did, he came to the world to save us in, in a way only God can do. So if Jesus isn't God, then everything he did was pointless. But if he is God, what Jesus did is the single most important thing in the world. That's a big deal. And this last one, Jesus says he's the only way to heaven, means that his way is exclusive. And in our culture of inclusivity and equity, that's hard to hear, especially to an outside world. As we get closer to that section of the topic, I'm, I'm going to talk more about it, but I want to frame this up by saying one thing. When we talk about Jesus being the only way to heaven, that is true. He said so in John 14, 6. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus said that out loud. But that's important because it's exclusive, but exclusivity is not the same as exclusion. See, 
Jesus' message about him being the only way to heaven is a gift from God because it is the most inclusive and equitable thing ever said. There is, this is available to anybody, anytime, anywhere. You cannot be disqualified from following Jesus. That's amazingly inclusive. Anybody can do that, but the way to heaven is only through Jesus. That means there is only one way. So it is both exclusive and amazingly inclusive. So I want you to remember that. When we get to that section, I want you to remember that, that discussion because it can get kind of hard to explain to some folks. So these three sayings that Jesus shared previous to this are coming up in our story today. And we're going to jump into Mark 14. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going through 11 verses today. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Mark 14. If not, they'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to jump into Mark 14, verse 1, and we're going to see some context, some scene setting from Mark that helps explain how some things went down. So in verse 1, we see it was now two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law were still looking for opportunity to kill Jesus and secretly kill him. So, okay. In verse 2, but not during the Passover celebration they agreed or the people may riot. This is mostly scene setting, mostly context, so I understand what's going on here. First off, the religious leaders are still trying to kill Jesus. That, that comes through here. But their nefarious murder plan has some reasonability because they said, hey, not, not during this huge celebration because people may get mad at us, which is a moment of short-sightedness in my opinion. But the reason they're so worried about Passover is because Passover is a huge deal in, in Jewish culture. It was back then and it still is today. The Passover celebration harkens back to the story of the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. So when it, for, for hundreds of years, people, God's people were slaves in Egypt. They built all kinds of crazy things, and the Egyptians were horrible slave masters. So the people of God cried out, and God said, hey, I'm going to bring you guys out of Egypt. I'm going to free you from the Egyptians. And so he sends Moses. Moses says, hey, let people go. Pharaoh says, nah, I'm not going to do that. And throughout the course, God sends ever-escalating plagues to show Pharaoh, hey, I really am the God of the universe. You should listen to me. And they get worse and worse and worse. The tenth and final plague was the worst of them all. It was the death of the firstborn in every family in the entire land. So God comes to his people and says, hey, guys, this is going to get bad tonight. I'm going to send a spirit of death to come kill the firstborns in the land. But I don't, you all are going to be spared from this, but you have to listen to me to get it right. So he says, I want you guys to, you're going to kill a lamb. You're going to paint that lamb's blood on your doorpost. And what's going to happen then is the spirit of death is going to come through. It's going to see the, the, door, the blood on your doorpost, and it's going to pass over your house and spare your family's firstborn. And that's exactly how it went down. The spirit of death came through. It was terrible. There was much wailing in the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh let God's people go. So the, the people of, of Israel celebrated this as a remembrance of the day that God came through for them in a way only he could do. And this Passover celebration was a week-long thing. It was a huge deal. And in Jerusalem, it was even bigger because Jerusalem's where the temple was. Right? Huge deal. There are people from all over the world in this city bustling through the streets, plugging up all the good food spots. Campgrounds are all full. You can't find anything you need. It's just nuts. The reason that's important is because this story happens immediately before that week. So we can imagine people in this story are probably a bit distracted thinking about, okay, whose house are we eating the, the, the food for at the big game? What are we bringing to the game? Oh, sorry, that, that's, that's Super Bowl, not Passover. Um, 
So what do we, God, I said I wouldn't make a Super Bowl joke, and I did. I'm so embarrassed. So people would set up for this big celebration, and they were distracted thinking about all these different details. And in the middle of that distraction and chaos, we see a story come up in which Jesus is hanging out in a house in Bethany. Now, he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a beautiful woman, or a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open this jar and poured the perfume over his head. That's it, one verse. Small story, but there's so much here. We studied Mark all of last year, and one of the biggest things about Mark is that he was shortened to the point. So when he includes details, it's for a reason. Simon, a previous leper in Bethany. That's important because that's a real person. Anybody reading this account could have walked over to Bethany, found this Simon dude, and asked him, hey, is this legit? It's like Mark is daring the reader to go investigate this claim. He's like, not only did this happen, here's the guy's address and zip code. Go get him. Go talk to him. That's craziness. Also, Simon was a former leper, which means he was healed of leprosy, either naturally or perhaps miraculously by a traveling son of God nearby. We don't know what happened here, but Simon probably has some good stories to tell. And in the middle of this dinner that's happening, we see a woman come in and interrupt the meal to do something, well, to our Western eyes, a bit strange. We don't know who this woman is in Mark's account, but when John wrote this story down, he wrote her name down. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus may perk up some of your ears. You may, that's a familiar name. Lazarus was a guy Jesus brought back from the dead. And this was his sister in this story. In fact, in John's account, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, and immediately after that, they're in Lazarus' dad's house, <laughs> eating dinner, and in comes Mary. And it puts a little more context to figure out Mary just watched Jesus bring her brother back from the dead. She's probably pretty awestruck, and that's probably what's going on here. Now, in, in, this, in this story, again, Mary interrupts the meal to, to do this thing. Usually in that context, uh, women didn't interrupt the meal unless they were bringing food. They were going to add to the meal. Mary didn't bring anything to add to the meal. But there was nothing that was going to stand between Mary and the Son of God. Not tradition, not convention, not a bunch of dudes who were scowling at her. She had something to do, and she needed to get it done. It's pretty cool here because, again, she just watched Jesus raise her brother from the dead. She may have seen her father be healed. She's watched Jesus do all these amazing miracles. She's heard him teach, and her response to that is extravagant worship. She takes this, this jar, this alabaster jar of perfume. Now, alabaster is pretty expensive, right? It's, it's a pretty nice thing. Perfume's pretty expensive. Even today, perfume's expensive. My son is buying cologne, and I can't believe how expensive those things are. But perfume's a big deal. It's a huge jar of expensive stuff. It's probably a family heirloom that was passed down and part of their family history. And she smashes it so that she can pour it over Jesus. What an, an, an incredible show of extravagance or possibly even wastefulness. I mean, my goodness, what, what was going on here? What was going through Mary's head that made her think that she needed to do this? Reading the text, it sure seems like Mary knew exactly who Jesus is, 
and what he was doing. And she wanted to make sure that nothing stood between her and giving Jesus everything that she had. Because in her mind, he deserves nothing less than her absolute entire self, including her financial security blanket from her family. Now, this, this kind of ties into our, our first hard saying of Jesus, and that is, you know, you can't serve both God and money. In, in Mary's mind, money didn't matter. Jesus, God himself, is sitting right there. Forget about money. Let's, just, let's go bring Jesus as much honor as I can bring him. Let's go be extravagant in our honor of Jesus. And in our, in our Western minds, even in our culture of, of glamour and decadence these days, this seems over the top, right? This seems highly unusual for us as a culture. But in Mary's mind, this was appropriate, See, because she was being extravagant toward a God who deserved everything she had. And the question for us today, how extravagant are you toward Jesus? Mary was unabashedly extravagant in her service to Jesus. Now, let me, let me define this for you. Extravagance today I'm talking about is the unhindered, unhinged, and utter disregard for convention or ego in the presence of God. Right? We often associate extravagance with like, you know, dancing in worship or, or giving huge sums of money to a, to a good cause. That, that's extravagant. But that's not what God's talking about here. When he says you can't serve both God and money, he's not talking about your checkbook exclusively. He's talking about your choices. He's talking about the fact that God is first or he's not. There's no, second, there's, there's no third option. When we talk about extravagance, we should not just think about showy things like dancing and worship or showy things like big something. We should think about everything we do should be extravagant. We should do everything to God with our utmost and complete selves. So if you're, if you're out there and you're shaking hands at the front door, do it extravagantly. I mean, God himself is with you. You're doing God's work. Serve as though you're serving God himself. You see, in, in Mary's mind, this was not an extravagant celebration. This was just everything she could do. This was her absolute best. When we talk about our acts of service, if you're, if you're cleaning toilets, if you're shaking hands, if you're preaching, if you're teaching, if you're singing, if you're shoveling snow, for, serve with extravagance. Because there is no greater honor than serving the God of the universe. And he loves it when we give him everything we have. I'm reminded of a story um, from the book of First Kings. So, in First Kings chapter six-ish, um, they they start talking about Solomon starts talking about building God's temple. This was the big one. This was Solomon's temple. It was huge. I mean, it was it was extravagant to say the least. There were huge, ornate pieces of furniture. The building itself was amazing. There was gold and bronze and ivory and all kinds of incredible things all over this building. Chapter seven, they they outline and describe the metal workings that were furnishing the temple. So all the metal work was like bronze and gold and all this stuff. There was a dude named Huram. Now, Huram was an expert metal worker, right? So he was, he was a metalsmith. And uh, they, they, he, he led all the metal furnishings in, in the, the temple. So everything was metal, was, was pounded out, made by him. In Solomon's temple, in the middle of all this ornate decadence, are these two colossally giant columns, pillars, they were more than 30 feet tall, and they were 18 feet around, made of bronze. These things were just massive, imposing forces. At the tippity top of the pillars were 200 bronze pomegranates on a chain. 
And when you read that, that's, that's kind of cool, but think about that. More than 30 feet in the air, there are 200 bronze pomegranates. Think about, like, on the ceiling in here, like that. There's 200 pomegranates on a chain on the ceiling in here. You can't see those things. Why did Huram go through the trouble to make 200 of these things by hand and hang them in a place that no one would ever see? God sees them. Huram knew they were there. That was enough reason for Haram to put everything he had into every single detail of every single piece of this project because God deserves his utmost and nothing less. That's a, that's a lesson for us today because if you're doing work and you don't think anybody sees it, but God does, work with extravagant utmost effort because God is honored when we put out our utmost Haram didn't care if anybody else commented on the detail he'd made on those temples, on those pillars and those pomegranates. It wasn't important to him. He wasn't serving them. He was serving God. Mary didn't care what the opinions of the table were about her. All she cared about was that Jesus, the Son of God, deserves everything I have, and I'm going to do it right now before I miss the chance. But folks at the table with Jesus, they, they didn't see it the same way Mary saw it. In verse 4, we saw some of those at the table were indignant at this act. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor, so they scolded her harshly. What, what were they so offended about? Well, she broke tradition. She broke convention. She put on this huge show for Jesus in their minds, and she wasted this expensive perfume that was her financial security, quote, just to honor Jesus. I bet, I bet if those guys heard themselves saying those words these days, after knowing what we know now, they would be flush, pretty embarrassed. Because just to honor Jesus is the only reason we need. At the table here, we, we see there's not any names provided of the folks that are at the table here in Mark's gospel. But again, in John's gospel, one of the folks that was indignant was Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas is the guy who betrays Jesus. Um, we don't have a whole lot of detail about what exactly he was so offended about, but it does say that he was one of those people. But importantly, he was not the only one there who was indignant. Mark says some at the table were bothered by this. So we vilify Judas, but at the same time, there's other people who had the same thought process. Jesus' response to them is amazing, though. He replied, he says, Jesus says, leave her alone why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you'll not always have me. This hints at our, our, our second hard saying of Jesus because Jesus is trying to tell them, guys, poor are going to be here all the time. I'm leaving you here to do that work, but God himself will not be here forever in my, in, in my, my physical body. Jesus says, I'm God, and I'm not going to be here much longer Get your perspective straight. Um, when, when we look at this, this act that Mary put out there, it's odd that Mary was the one who put out this amazing act of extravagance. She wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. Right? The, these guys, they, they followed Jesus around the whole time. They, they heard him say these things. They heard all the things he was teaching about. Before this story, Jesus is telling them, hey guys, I'm going to die but I'm coming back, don't worry, but I'm just so you know, like, we're getting close here, guys. It's almost time, and they're not hearing it. They're too distracted by all the busyness going on. 
But Mary, no, no, no. Mary, she saw the big things, the God things that Jesus did. Right? Her brother came back from the dead. Her dad may have been healed by Jesus. We don't know. But she heard these stories. She watched these things happen. Nothing was going to stand between her and the Son of God and the honor that was due him. Jesus actually says, Mary has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of the time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the whole world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. That last part there in verse 9, that's true. We're talking about it today. And it's been talked about a lot. This small act of worship was such a huge deal. Jesus is like, hey, write this down. This is important, guys. Why was it so important? Because Mary did what she could, and what she could do was anoint Jesus with perfume. Now, in the Western culture, we don't talk about anointing very much, so I'll give you just a, a brief kind of frame up there. Anointing somebody with oil um, was customary with traditional in two occasions, right? The first one is you were anointing somebody who was going to be king. That was usually a priest who would do that, okay? The second thing you would do is you would anoint a body before burial. In this picture, Mary did both. She anointed Jesus as king and got him ready for his coming death and burial. She could see what was going on when everybody else was too busy to notice. She could see that Jesus is God and is therefore king. And if Jesus is king, then what he says goes. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I, no one comes to the Father except through me. That means that Jesus is the only way to heaven where he's king. This one's, again, we, we talked about kind of ouchy. Um, of these three hard sayings we talked about today, people can get along with, okay, God and money, yeah, okay, I can get that, that's fine. Uh, Jesus is God, yeah, he did some God stuff, that makes sense, but this Jesus is the only way to heaven thing, ah, that's, that's too much. This is where a lot of folks check out. Because, again, we talked about before, the idea of exclusive path to heaven can be alienating to those who are not in the included group. So, that becomes a thing where somebody says, I can't follow a God who would send somebody to hell. I've heard that a lot. I want to counter that today with a little logic, though. After we look at our perspectives and how that matters to us, your perspective affects when Jesus says he's the only way to heaven. Following God is our choice. We can choose to follow God or we can choose to not follow God. Would we agree on that? Okay, so if we're, if we're allowed to choose whether we follow God or we don't follow God, the end result of following God is heaven. The end result of not following God is hell. They're, they're just diametrically opposed positions. But God doesn't send anybody to either place. God never makes us hold to a choice that we didn't make ourselves. If you choose not to follow God on earth, He won't make you follow Him in heaven. And that means that people walk to hell under their own power, or they walk to heaven under Jesus' power. Those are the two options. There's no other option out there. It's not a matter of God sending somebody anywhere. It's a matter of us choosing whether we're going to love God or love ourselves. 
See, this is actually a beautiful thing because God knows that we are we're bound by time and space, right? We're, we, are, we are temporal creatures. That means that we began at a time, and therefore our time on earth will end. And he knows that the finality of that scares us. Like, we like the stories about God being merciful and gracious. We say God is a God of second chances, and he absolutely is. While you're here on earth, God will give you second chance after second chance because he wants you to come home to him. But God is not a God of infinite do-overs because he's fair and just. That means that, that when this life is over, your decision has been made. And while that's scary to some folks, it's actually quite beautiful because that means if you're here today, you can still choose to follow Jesus. I told you before, nothing disqualifies you from following Jesus. Nothing in the entire world will ever do that. That's a beautiful thing. But the enemy has perverted that message of beauty and grace into one of exclusion. It's illusion of a, of a, a special club that only certain kinds of people can, can join. Like, you're not good enough to be in God's family. That's garbage. There's no truth to that at all. Everyone is good enough to be in God's family because nobody is. <laughs> That's how it works, gang. So don't believe the lie from the enemy that says that you're not good enough to come to God's family. Fight that lie with the truth that God says he loves you like crazy and he moved heaven and earth to come save you. But this pervasive, perverted twisting of God's gift, it's been around for a long time. We actually see in uh, the next two verses here, Judas believed this lie. Right? One of the 12, he, he went away to go betray Jesus. Something in this scene pushed Judas over the edge. That should break our hearts uh, because it shows us that simply being with Jesus is not the same as calling him Lord. Judas was with Jesus all the time. They shared meals together. They complained about blisters. They ran from angry mobs together. They slept in tents, had cookouts and campouts. That wasn't enough. Judas seemingly saw Jesus as a means to an end. And when Judas saw that end wasn't going to come about, he left. He betrayed Jesus. By contrast, the other 11 disciples who did stick with Jesus all the way to their own deaths, they saw Jesus as both the means and the end. Right? All they wanted to do was be closer to Jesus. They didn't, they didn't want Jesus' miracles and his stuff and his sayings. They just wanted more of Jesus. And they wanted everybody around them to know Jesus also because they knew how much of a friend Jesus is to them. This actually comes all the way back to the very beginning of, of, of Mark. We were at the very beginning last year this time. We were in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark wrote down the point of his book. The reason I'm writing this whole thing down is because this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. And we read that last year. I've read it a hundred and hundred and hundred times. I've read it so many times. But this week I caught something different. This is the good news about Jesus. Not, not the good news about the message of Jesus or the miracles Jesus did or the stories of Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus, the person. Jesus, the person, is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the good news. He is the point and Jesus himself actually says, a few verses later, he says, the time promised by God has come at last. Repent and believe, right? Repent of your sins and believe the good news. You can almost see the smile on Jesus' face. He's like, guys, guess what? It's time. I'm here. Let's go. Here we go. Because he is 
the good news. We started off talking about perspective. We started off talking about how our perspective frames how we understand the things Jesus says. If our perspective of God is some cosmic traffic cop in the sky waiting for us to mess up so he can deal us a bummer, we're going to see God as an angry, vengeful being that has to be appeased. So we do all these hard sayings of Jesus so that we can get into heaven and please an angry God. But if we see God as a loving creator who literally moved heaven and earth to come save us when we couldn't do it ourselves, we see these sayings from Jesus as gifts from God to give us another way to live, a better way to be. God says you can't serve both God and money because he knows it's torture to try. God says, I'm the only way to heaven, and that's because he knows how to get there. He's been there before. It's a gift, gang. Without Jesus, we can't do any of this, but with him, we can do anything. Jesus is God. He is the only way to heaven, and he wants all of you. Even your financial and physical security blankets. It's not a, it's not a game. It's not a scam. It's not a means to an end. Following Jesus has to be about your relationship with him, because he is a loving God who would do almost anything to come get you. He did. Perspective matters, gang. Jesus' message to us was never meant to be a burden or a hurdle to get over or a checkbox to make. Jesus' message to us is supposed to be a gift for us to choose a better way to live and, more importantly, to choose to follow a God who would can't say how much he loves us enough. When we talk about being extravagant toward Jesus, we talk about these, these acts of extravagant service, there is no act of extravagance that is extravagant enough if you consent to the fact that Jesus is God. You, you can't do enough. So stop being so afraid to, to, to mess it up. I mean, if you... No, let me wind this down this way. Jesus wants to talk to you, right? He wants to give you these words of these hard sayings. He wants to give you these messages. He wants to tell you these things, but you have to talk to him to do it. So this week, the practical dare for you this week is I dare you to talk to Jesus like you would talk to anybody else in your life. Talk to him as a person, not as an impersonal force in the sky who can make things happen, but, but talk to him as a person. Listen to him, hear what he says, and then do what he says, and I bet your perspective about him will change dramatically. So again, talk to him. He can't wait to hear from you. Let's pray. God, you are God, you are so much. God, you are so great. You are amazing, God. We love you so much. And, and we, we can't say enough things. We can't, we can't be extravagant enough to show you how much you're worth to us, God, because you are so big, you can move heaven and earth to do what you must, but at the end of the day, you're also so close, we can talk to you as a friend, as a loving father, as somebody who cares about us as people. God, you, are, you, you didn't have to make a way for us, but you did. And we're so grateful, God. Thank you for, for loving us so much and for giving so much of, uh, of yourself to us, God. We ask that you would, you would break our hearts this week. You would show us more of you and you would prepare us to tell others about how great you are, God. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.